Hello, everyone, and welcome to Keith Crosby Out of My Mind. This is podcast 021, podcast 21. It's part of a mini-series within our larger series, and this mini-series is called Understanding Addiction. We'll be having a biblical conversation about this complex topic so that we can make sense of it using God's Word. So join us over the next 20 minutes or so as we give you a bird's-eye view of perspective of this complex topic, this challenge confronting our culture, the church, and you. At the end of the podcast, we'll point you to additional resources for further study, just in case you'd like to dig a little bit deeper. In the meantime, let's get started with today's podcast, The End of Addiction. All right, the end of addiction. It sounds like we've kind of come to the end of the road here, and and there's some finality to this, Keith. Do you want to elaborate on that? Sure thing, Mark. Addiction has a destination. Where does addiction lead? Where does it end? And again, I just want to talk to our listeners. You might want to go back and listen to The Morality of Addiction, Podcast 19, or The Physiology and Psychology of Addiction, Podcast 20, so you'll have some context for today's discussion. But essentially, addiction always leads somewhere, sooner or later. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, where it leads, where it all ends. And next week, we'll talk about what you can do about it as we discuss intervention next week. Okay, so where does it all lead? What do we see there at the end of addiction? Well, you know, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, and addiction is a result of sin. And addiction sometimes ends in depression, sometimes in delusion, sometimes in suicide, and sometimes in death. And sometimes people get out of it. Sometimes people break free. And as we discussed in the physiology and psychology of addiction, there are mental and physical consequences to substance abuse. So I'd sort of like to take these on, and we'll start with depression. One of the ends of addiction, one of the consequences of addiction, is depression. We have to be careful. That's a big word, and sometimes the depression diagnosis is often made in error. Can drug abuse or drug addiction lead to sadness, loss, and a sense of hopelessness? It can. Do these always equate with clinical depression? Not necessarily. Okay, so maybe get into a little bit more what you mean by these diagnosis made in error. Are you saying that these depression diagnoses are just not correct diagnosis or are they just diagnosis that covers up something else? Well, in the 21st century American culture in which we live, Mark, we tend to get sloppy with our words, with our speech, and sometimes we blur distinctions between our feelings in a given moment or a stretch of time with something else. And a lot of times people misdiagnose depression. And if we do that with addiction, we don't want to make a terrible situation worse by diagnosing and treating another problem that may not actually exist, and often with prescription drugs do we treat these things. These days, for example, someone may say, oh man, I've got a migraine headache, when all they really have is a headache. And we've all heard and seen people complain about the flu when they really just have a bad cold. And people take antibiotics for viruses when antibiotics don't work for viruses, and they shouldn't be taken for them. They do harm when we do that. They make other bacteria in our body uh, resistant to antibiotics, and it only leads to harm. And so... I get it that with addiction and the sadness and the sorrow that follows that people are in pain. People are sometimes almost paralyzed by their sadness. They feel terrible and the pain is real enough, but it may not be depression. It may not be clinical depression. And we have to be very careful with that. Studies show that a little over 60% of those diagnosed or labeled as depressive do not meet the criteria. 
And there is a difference between a diagnosis of clinical depression and the sadness and fallout of the consequences of addiction, a sorrow that can actually lead to change in some cases. Being sad, feeling hopeless, lacking energy due to the punishment that you subject your body and mind to doesn't always equate with depression. This isn't necessarily an illness or a mental illness, and we do not want to complicate the matter further by misdiagnosing and mistreating a patient. So let's talk a little bit about the symptoms of clinical depression, because we don't want to make a bad situation worse. Symptoms include a loss of appetite, weight loss, weight gain, sluggishness. Sometimes the people seem to stay in bed for days. They can't get out of bed. And at the same time, they have difficulty sleeping. There are mood swings, irritability, a lack of interest in things that they once enjoyed, suicidal ideation where they're like dwelling on suicidal thoughts. They're not making a statement in haste. Oh, I feel like killing myself. They're going through the process of planning or thinking or weighing their options that way. And so when you see this collection of symptoms, you want to be ready to intervene, ready to get them help, but you want to be careful not to jump to conclusions and medicate them further. Talk therapy is better. And so I just want to give that caveat. We want to avoid the misdiagnosis of a sadness or a sorrow that may ultimately lead to them hitting rock bottom and embracing real change. Okay, so you mentioned this delusion so what do you mean by that? Uh, delusion, I think, is, is a pretty loaded term. Um, and so how does this drug abuse or this addiction lead to some of these delusions? We talked a little bit about that with the psychological ramifications and the physiological ramifications and this impulse or drive to get more drugs and things like that. Addiction can lead to, and often does, almost always does, lead to delusion. And there are essentially two manifestations or two kinds of delusion. There is the delusion of the addict where they just lose all perspective. And then there's a delusion for the ones who love them and who are overwhelmed by their behavior and all the fallout. And they get this almost savior mentality and they become deluded in a different way. It's a harsh sounding term, but they become enablers. This gets back to the idea that addiction is like a hand grenade with lots of collateral damage that we discussed in the last episode. Addicts and those who love them together often become so desperate for different reasons that they lose sight of reality. An addict's delusion and desperation can be caused by physiological and psychological problems. Again, that's the previous episode. In the same way, the enabler a family member, a friend, somebody who cares about them can suffer this delusion that there's a good reason for the addiction and that there's just a real simple solution to it. And they become overwhelmed by all of this and they lose perspective. And both of them can wind up self-deceived or deluded, almost detached from reality at some level. The enabler can then go about bailing the addict out time and time again making excuses for them rather than letting them experience the consequences of their sin and addiction, which will ultimately lead to what they call hitting rock bottom. When an addict hits rock bottom, they often come to the end of themselves and they experience something that we discussed last time or at least alluded to it called a significant emotional event, an SEE. Delusion for an addict might present itself at first in the same way that I have a migraine when somebody has a headache and what they'll do is they'll misdiagnose their problem. 
they will take the normal pressures and pains of this world and use them as an excuse to medicate some unbearable situation that the addict wants to pretend or wants to convince himself that they're suffering from, and therefore they have good reason to abuse drugs. They're looking to rationalize and justify their addiction. They're kidding themselves. They console themselves. Everything is a crisis that's too big to manage, and so they lower their expectations upon themselves, and they abuse substances. And a family member who desperately loves them and wants to help them falls into a similar trap and becomes an enabler. They act like the addict has a good reason. Something in their past has happened, and there's a good reason for their addiction, and other people just don't understand the addict the way that they do. So they have this reason, or at least some excuse, to do what they do, at least in their minds, in the minds of their enablers, and they're both deceived. They're both deluded. Enablers sometimes are convinced of the addict's exceptionalism, and they begin making excuses. And you know what happens? Everybody loses. It's tragic. Enablers and addicts rationalize and accept all kinds of excuses, and make all kinds of excuses for these bad behaviors. And they begin to remember a rosy past that never existed. They engage in something like historical and behavioral revisionism, rewriting the past often through the lens of a utopian lens or a, or a dystopian lens. And this kind of gets back to either blame shifting or rationalization, but ultimately it involves self-delusion, self-deceiving. So why do you think these enablers do this? What's going on in their minds? Why... Why are they trying to change what's gone on in the past? Well, I know some of this is going to sound unkind, but harsh truth and hard truth are two different things. They may seem similar. But often with the enabler, it's an attempt to make sense of the past and the present and, and to try to, to explain the unexplainable, why somebody would play with fire in this way. It's an attempt by an enabler to find a way to continue to permit or rationalize bad behavior because they love the addict and they want to be nice to the addict. Okay, I, I guess I can see that. But why would they do this when it really just doesn't help anything? Well, we have to remember, as confounding as all this is for us, these are all people in crisis who are asking the wrong questions in order to make sense of the situation. They're in great, great distress. Uh, at some level, they're seeking solace and comfort. They're trying to find hope in a seemingly hopeless situation. For the addict, maybe he's ruined his career or his marriage or, or, or whatever it is. And, and for the enabler, they're trying to find a cause for this that somehow makes this painful reality a little more acceptable. And the problem is, is that they both need help because this is no time for fairy tale solutions. Okay, so it seems like this would be where tough love comes into play. And this is where we would try to begin to shake things up and, and maybe help them confront reality, right? Yeah, it's really difficult. There, there's a very difficult balance and equilibrium. There has to be tough love. It has to be graciously and uh, thoughtfully and deliberately applied. And we're going to talk about these interventions in our final episode next Wednesday. But the truth is, nothing works until they hit rock bottom, until they come to the end of themselves in terms of their situation. They experience a sadness or a sorrow that doesn't lead to loss, like suicide or further drug abuse, but it leads to great gain. Uh, they come to their senses. The same thing has to happen to an enabler. You've got to come to the end of yourself. You've got to stop seeing yourself as their only savior. There's only one savior, and it's not you. It's not all up to you. You begin to delude yourself, believing that you can rescue them, and, and you keep them from hitting rock bottom, and until they hit rock bottom, nobody can help them. 
And when you lose perspective as an enabler along with them, you've joined them in the quicksand. And it all comes back to the fact that there's only one Savior in this world, and that's Jesus Christ. And as heartbreaking as it is, addiction creates a dual delusion, multiple victims. It creates enablers as part of the collateral damage. And ultimately, both the addict and the enabler have to hit rock bottom. They've got to come to terms with what's going on. And and, and sadly, here's where the enabler delusion becomes deadly. The enabler short circuits the addict hitting rock bottom. They keep bailing them out before they reach the end, and it only drags out the addiction and the harm and creates a greater possibility that the addict could lose his or her life. Humanly speaking, when somebody is in full-blown substance abuse and they're an addict, there's nothing to do but wait, and, and you have to wait until that addict hits rock bottom. That is where the end of their addiction comes, and addiction often leads to death. It's an ugly and frightening progression. We've all seen pictures of it where you see people online, whether meth addicts or some type of addict, and they look like a, an inmate at a concentration camp, or they look like a cancer patient who's wasted away. They age at an accelerated rate, and their youth gives way to weariness and their vitality, to lethargy and their attractiveness, to decrepitness. And a bright future devolves into a hopeless one by choice. And yes, there can be depression and mental illness that result from this self-abuse, but we have to be careful to remember that these are self-injury. And these These injuries are symptomatic rather than causative. They are indicative of a wrong mindset, of a wrong thought process that we talked about with, you know, James. When sin is full-blown, it brings forth death. It's a willful moral choice. We are tempted and carried away by our own desires, and sooner or later, it brings forth death. Okay, so how does this death come? Maybe talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I touched on it last time, I think, or the time before. I lose track. It could come through illness or overdose. See, when you abuse drugs and you're buying drugs, you're not buying it necessarily from the neighborhood pharmacies. I mean, some people do abuse prescription drugs, but there's no consistency in the purity and the efficacy of the drug. It could be diluted with harmful materials or because your addiction is growing and your body's desire and your mind's desire for greater and greater amounts of the drug. And then you get this drug that might be more pure than the last time and you overdose or you just take way too much. Illness comes through self-injury where the liver is damaged by the alcoholic, the mind is damaged by all the drugs. You just wear your body down. Maybe you contract a sexually transmitted disease because you're prostituting yourself. Maybe you shared the needle with one too many people. There are so many ways that illness comes. And and it's just, it's, it's, it's a sad thing this self-injury and injuring of the body, of the brain, of the immune system, of the soul. Man, it seems just so hopeless, kind of the end of addiction uh, seems like a pretty dark and hopeless place to be. Well, I have to say that humanly speaking, uh, the odds are not in favor of our addicted uh, brother or sister or a husband or wife or loved one. Uh, many die. In fact, everybody dies. All, all of them die. Whoa, okay, so all die? What do you mean by that? Well, well, Mark, all people die. You and I are going to die. Addicts die sooner than most, but all of us die. The question is when, how, and why. Self-abuse has its consequences, premature death. In fact, their behavior is tantamount to slow-motion suicide. Okay, so now that we've kind of seen that dark and almost hopeless side of the end of addiction, um, and, we, and we just talked about the fact that, you know, ultimately we, we do all die, and addicts often die sooner than, than, than non-addicts. 
where's all the hope in that? I know that there's hope because there is Christ in, in God. And I know that, that ultimately there is hope there. Um, but how do we, how do we get there? You know, like the angel said to Mary, for nothing is impossible with God. You know, people do survive addiction. There's another end of addiction, a happier one. I know addicts who beat addiction. And all the cases I know, all but two beat the addiction through Jesus Christ by entering into a relationship with Christ. I don't mean being a churchgoer on weekends or a church person engaging in you know occasional God talk and then living as if God doesn't exist. Most addicts are spiritual people as are their enablers, and there's a lot of spiritual talk among them, but ultimately you know a tree by the fruit it bears, and a Christian by outward appearance and profession is different than a Christian by inward reality. Someone who has surrendered their soul to Jesus Christ Not a part-time Christianity, but an all-in Christianity. Christ is your God, not your crutch, and he leads you to a better way. He enables and empowers you in a good way to overcome your addiction. You know, as much as I respect Alcoholics Anonymous AA, their language about this vague higher power that one chooses to call God sounds romantic and spiritual, but it's mostly useless. You need Christ to beat the addiction. Now, having said all this, there are those who beat the addiction without Christ through sheer willpower. They make the right choice. So what would you say happened there? Well, the the gentleman that I know did it by sheer determination. He made no excuses. He owned his behavior. He wanted to change. And he had a significant emotional event. Coming out of a drug-induced haze, he found himself on the floor of a men's room in a bus station with somebody standing over him about to molest him. And that was his rock bottom. He escaped, and he asked himself the question, where will I be a year from now? And as a result, he chose a different path. And he asked his parents to commit him to a facility, and and they did it in a way that he couldn't walk out or withdraw from treatment. They committed him to a residential uh, treatment program, and he forfeited the right to dismiss or discharge himself. Did he struggle? He did. Did he make excuses? No, he didn't. Did he suffer physical and emotional agonies in in the process of withdrawal? Yes, he did. But did he succeed? He did. He beat the habit through a matter of personal choice, just like he developed the habit. He chose to do differently. He chose wisely. He chose not to make excuses. And by sheer willpower and determination, after hitting rock bottom, that rock bottom brought him that moment of clarity. He chose a different path. And that's the key, a significant emotional event. For some people, it's secular. But the ones who generally succeed, it's usually Christ at least in my experience. So maybe develop this idea of these significant emotional events, these SEEs, um, and maybe even a little bit more so. Uh, you've talked a lot about rock bottom and, and hitting rock bottom. Uh, maybe kind of talking about how those two events uh, work together to help addicts ultimately see the error in their ways. Well, you know, in the old days, they used to say, sometimes God will knock you so low, all you can do is look up. And, and what happens a lot of times with those who survive their addiction, is that their pride dies because they go so low, they hit what we call rock bottom. And, and they, they get a moment of clarity. This is a significant emotional event where they basically are so broken by their choices that they, they experience what Paul calls in, in Corinthians a godly sorrow or a sorrow that does not lead to loss. People come to their senses Uh, There's a picture of it in in what I'm talking about in the Gospel of Luke. It's the story of the prodigal son or the lost son. 
and he hits rock bottom. And here's the key excerpt from Luke 15, 17 through 20. So this good Jewish boy is now feeding pigs and he's hungry. He wants to eat the pig's food. The pigs are unclean. He comes to the end of himself and listen to what Luke writes. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Notice his mindset. He hit rock bottom. He came to his senses. And notice how he sees himself. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He makes no excuses. Make me like one of your hired servants. This isn't low esteem. This is proper self-esteem. This is reality. And this is where hope is found when somebody hits rock bottom. They are ready to do whatever is necessary to change. All right. Well, I think we're out of time. And so I think uh, you've kind of set this up already, but uh, coming back next week and really talking about what to do when they're ready for that change. Yeah, that's what we're going to talk about, Mark. What to do, whether or not they're ready in reality. You know, and this is where we're going to talk a little bit about interventions uh, or what some people call interventions. You know, there's no good place to break, but I think we will break here so that we can wrap this up next week and bring and, and just bring this to a conclusion and give people a framework within which to work. So that's it for today. Uh, Stay with us for our next episode called Intervention. If you'd like further resources, you can visit us online at www.gracetoliveradio.org and click the podcast resource button. If you'd like to ask me a question, you can email me at keith at hillside.org. I'd love to hear from you, and I'll try to answer your email within 24 hours. You can learn more about Hillside Church at www.hillside.org. We have services at 9 o'clock in the morning in person and at 1045, and our Spanish service is at 1.30 on Sunday morning. You can also watch us online at www.hillside.org forward slash services. Before we go, if you're listening to Apple Podcast or Google Podcast or Spotify or any other platform, be sure and like us. Give us a high rating. Recommend us to your friends so that we can help and reach more people. This is Keith Crosby and Mark Stickler, Out of My Mind, saying goodbye and God bless you.